Welcome back and welcome back in everyone to another episode here at the Noah's Ark of Sports podcast. I'm your host, Noah Dunlap. I hope all of you have had great weekends with whatever it is you found yourself doing. Uh, hopefully you didn't have to work. I know, at least hopefully, no one had schoolwork or anything to do this weekend. Um, so whatever it is you were doing, whether you went on a trip, whether you were on vacation, whether you were just hanging around watching football like I was, whatever the case is, hope you all enjoyed your weekend. Hope you all enjoyed whatever it is that you had going on. Um, got a lot to get to on the show today. As always, on the Monday edition of this show, we're going to talk college football. We're going to talk NFL. We're also going to talk uh, Major League Baseball for just a little bit and talk about some things there. So with that being said, go ahead, sit back, enjoy yourself, and let's dive right in. So to start off the show today, I want to talk college football as we always do on Monday. And this weekend, I don't know that we were surprised by all that much. I think most things kind of went, generally speaking anyway, as expected. When you look up and down what we saw, Georgia was off. Georgia had a bye week. Ohio State, Ohio State destroyed Iowa because Iowa literally cannot score. At some point when you look at the Iowa situation, you have to look at it and decide if you're Iowa's administration. The question becomes, Kirk Ferenz is the head coach. His son is the offensive coordinator. Iowa's offense is historically one of the worst offenses we have ever seen from a Power 5 school. That being said, Kirk Ferenz is going to have to fire his son. It That is what is going to have to happen. I know that's unfortunate. I know it's uncomfortable. But the fact is, is that in this situation, when you bring in your son to be one of your assistants, one of your coordinators, if he sucks at his job, he has to go. So in this situation, if I'm Iowa here, I'm basically looking at Kirk Ferenz and saying, hey, it's either you fire your son or y'all are both gone. Because it was already an odd decision to bring in um, his son in the first place. I think a lot of people questioned it. And now when you look at where things have gone and just how bad things are, I think you realize that move has to be made. Now, we are more than halfway through the year. So the question is, do you just ride out the rest of this season and throw this season up, basically let it burn up in smoke, and then fire him at the end of the year? Maybe that's the move. I don't know. But I would make it clear if I were Iowa that it's either going to be your son getting fired as the OC or it's going to be both of you being fired because this can't continue. But either way, Ohio State destroying Iowa. Um, you look at Tennessee destroying UT Martin. No surprise there. Uh, who else did we have? Clemson. Clemson is a unique situation that we need to talk about real quick in the sense that Clemson had to come from behind at home against Syracuse. I understand Syracuse was a top 15 team at the time, but I think most people kind of agree that Syracuse is probably a little overranked. The issue is DJ Uyangalale had an absolutely atrocious day for Clemson. Ended up getting benched and the the bigger issue I had here is once Dabo decided to bench DJU, Kublik, I believe is his name, the backup, came in and the Clemson offense, they looked better, they scored more points, they looked more relaxed, more controlled. They they end up coming back, they win the ball game. After the game, 
Dabo came out and made it clear that DJU is still the quarterback moving forward, I got to be honest with you, I don't like that. And I understand that when DJ is, when he's on, he is really good. When he is on, he's outstanding. But at some point, you have to acknowledge that he does seem to slip up quite a bit. And that becomes problematic because eventually you are going to play a team where if you get behind by 10, by 14, whatever the case is, because DJ is struggling, you're going to eventually play a team, most people would think, that you won't be able to come back from. You won't be able to erase that deficit, come back from that deficit. So with with looking at this one, I understand that DJ probably needs to be your starter per se. Just because you're undefeated, he has the experience. But on the flip side, I might would have to make that move. After watching the way Kublik played, you you legitimately might need to make that move. And apparently they're not going to. And we knew they weren't going to. If you saw the play calling when you benched DJU, it was very abundantly clear that Clemson wasn't going to let this guy really throw the ball downfield all that much. It was a more conservative approach. The issue is that the more conservative approach still worked. So apparently there's no quarterback controversy at Clemson right now. I don't know if I agree with that. I think I would potentially have to assume there's a bit of quarterback controversy there. But nonetheless, I don't get paid millions of dollars to coach. That's what Dabo's there for. Alabama destroying Mississippi State. TCU sliding by K-State in a really close game there. That was fun to watch if you actually tuned in for that one. Um, One of the best games of the weekend, at least before the game kicked off, Oregon and UCLA. What happened is we saw UCLA get exposed as being fraudulent. Oregon, after an opening week loss where you lost 49-3 to against Georgia in just heinously ugly fashion, the Oregon Ducks and Dan Lanning have magically righted the ship, and they are playing good football, and more importantly, they are boat racing everyone. These games aren't close. Oregon is just rolling right now. So as far as it goes, keep an eye on the Ducks. They have one loss, and I think it's going to be extremely hard to overcome that one loss, um, especially with the number, the fact that it was 49-3. to But at the same time, when you look at Oregon right now and the way they are playing, they are just absolutely destroying people. So that could potentially play a role in the playoff as we come down the stretch, especially if teams ahead of them fall out, lose here and there. So that'll be fun to watch. Oklahoma State getting a big win over Texas in close fashion. Wake Forest rolling right along. Penn State destroying Minnesota in the whiteout up there in Happy Valley. Um, and now Penn State hosts Ohio State this weekend. That's going to be fun for about a half. Unless something changes, I just don't know that Penn State has enough for Ohio State. But again, like I said, it's in Happy Valley. It's Penn State hosting. So we'll see what happens there. Maybe they hang around. Maybe they keep it close. But the issue is that James Franklin at Penn State has not been able to beat the elite level teams in the Big Ten East. And I'm scared that that trend is probably going to continue this year as Penn State's look good against everyone else, and that's no question. But in their one game so far where you played a real opponent, being Michigan, Penn State just nothing happened. 
they couldn't get anything going. You ended up losing 40-17, to 17, I think, was the final. So questions there at Happy Valley with Penn State right now. Like I said, big win over Minnesota. That's great, but now they have to take on Ohio State, and I just don't know that they have the horses to actually stay in that one. Um, a few other things from around the top 25, at least here. You look at Syracuse, we already talked about Syracuse falling on the road at Clemson. Illinois, Illinois rolling, they are now up to 17 and 18 in the AP and the USA Today polls, respectively. Brett Bielema, all he does in the Big Ten is win. Keep in mind, he's the one who was at Wisconsin for quite a while, over a decade, I believe it was, that he was at Wisconsin, had the Badgers rolling, and apparently after leaving Wisconsin, ending up down at Arkansas, things didn't work out at Arkansas, he ended up back in the Big Ten, back in the Big Ten West, and you know what he's doing? He is absolutely building a monster up there in Champaign. Look out for Illinois to win the Big Ten West. I think they have a very real shot at doing so this year. So that's one to keep an eye on. Um, and the other one I want to talk about, as we know, I'm an Ole Miss alum, and Ole Miss played LSU on the road in Death Valley this week. And this is a game I want to spend a little bit of time talking about just because of how infuriating it was to watch all the way around. So this Ole Miss game down in Baton Rouge, down at Tiger Stadium, um, it started about as well as you could have hoped if you're an Ole Miss fan. Opening drive of the game, they run down the field in three or four plays. You score a touchdown, everything looks good. And then your defense shows a little bit of resistance. Not much, but at least a little bit. Your offense continues to look good. Ends up being 17-3 to reasonably early on. And then all of a sudden, the defense falls apart. The offense can't get anything going. Jackson Dart misses a wide-open receiver running downfield that would have been a touchdown. At the time that Jackson Dart missed that throw, it was a sure touchdown if you hit him. It was off his back foot, infuriating stuff if you were watching, and it would have made the game 24-3. 24-3 in that situation, I don't think it would have wrapped the game up but it certainly would have put LSU on their heels and there would have been a whole lot more pressure put on them to respond than there was because 17 to 3 that's easy that's a touchdown one stop and another touchdown in today's college football you can do that in 4 minutes 24 to 3 against a good Ole Miss offense that's asking for two stops and for you to score on every possession. Suddenly, we're talking about a little more pressure, especially seeing as, at the time, you were already in the second quarter. Instead, Jackson Dart misses the receiver. He overthrows him. Ole Miss doesn't score on that drive. It's still 17-3. to And then, not long after, you realize LSU is tied up, and it's 17-17. Ole Miss kicks field goal before halftime. 20 to 17 should be more, but that's fine. You'll take a three point lead. And then the second half started, and it's almost like Ole Miss just forgot to come out of the locker room. It looks like they just left the building at halftime. The offense looked atrocious, the defense couldn't stop anyone. Jaden Daniels had a monster day. And while he is a good quarterback, they made him look like a Heisman Trophy winner. It was pathetic. So where I want to talk about this, I want to talk about a few things surrounding Ole Miss. Before we do that, let's go ahead and address it. LSU is a good football team. For anyone curious, I know LSU struggled early this year. Uh, they lost to Florida State in week one. 
But there was no question that Brian Kelly is going to win down in Baton Rouge. There is no question. Brian Kelly is going to win at a very high level in Baton Rouge. The the recruiting bed that's down there, the resources at LSU, the the fact that you're playing at Tiger Stadium in front of 104,000 people, all of these things are massive when it comes to recruiting. You're playing in the SEC. All of these things are huge. However, I don't know that they are quite that good this year because I'm not sure where the talent is right now. That's the issue. That's the problem. So when you look at it from the Ole Miss perspective, it was the fact that you were good enough to get up 17-3. to You were good enough to have the chance, the opportunity to take a 24-3 to lead and then the wheels just come off. And the problem that I had, and this is a problem that I've had with Ole Miss all year long, which is the fact that adjustments do not get made. And as much as I love Lane Kiffin, anyone who knows me knows I absolutely love Lane. The issue here is he has to own some of that too. Some of that falls on him as well. Because when you look at it, halftime is about making adjustments. I don't believe Ole Miss scored in the second half against Troy this year. There have been multiple games where Ole Miss has either not scored in the second half or you've been held to 7 or 10 in the second half. And this is against a bad schedule up to this point. The only even remotely decent team before this week that they had played was Kentucky. You managed to sneak by in that one because Kentucky basically gave the game away. The lack of adjustments that are being made is problematic, and it's going to cause issues, especially down the stretch when you look at this Ole Miss schedule moving forward. It started this week. They go to College Station this upcoming week, and I think it's a win. I I'm still going to hang high on the notion that Ole Miss should be able to beat Texas A&M just because the wheels have come off in College Station, and we'll talk about that in just one second. But the lack of adjustments that are being made at halftime from Ole Miss, both on the offense and the defensive sides of the ball, it's problematic and it's, it's troublesome because you know the talent's there. The talent is for sure there on the offensive side of the ball. They prove it in the first half, and then you come out in the second half and you just look bored and lackadaisical. And whether that's a lack of adjustments and your your opponents actually making the adjustment, or whether that's the players themselves just not caring and not having their foot on the gas, something has to change because that cannot continue. That is a very problematic thing moving forward that is going to end up biting you in the end if you don't get that um, rectified. So that's the biggest complaint that I've had about Ole Miss football all year is the lack of adjustments in the second half. They look amazing in the first half, and then you look up in the second half, and you're like, this doesn't even remotely look like the same team. That's exactly what we saw on Saturday. The other side of this, I would fire my defensive coordinator. I know it's his first year. Uh, DJ Durkin left to go to Texas A&M, left to go to College Station. But at this point, I think we have seen enough from this defense to know that this is not the move. And the reason I say that is Ole Miss is in the process of running a three-man front on the defensive line. That is not working in today's SEC. It's not. It won't. It virtually can't unless you have legitimate monsters on your defensive line, which they don't. It worked a little bit last year because of the fact that they had Sam Williams on the end. They don't have Sam Williams this year. Sam Williams is now with the Dallas Cowboys. He's wrecking things in the NFL. You don't have enough talent on your defensive line to be running a three-man front, not getting any pressure, and just letting the quarterback either sit back in the pocket all day long 
and make easy throws, or if you do potentially get just a touch of pressure, quarterback just bails out and goes. Those are the only two things that are happening. The scheme sucks. The notion of the three uh the three man front running a three two six is terrible. It ain't working. And more than that, you saw it. I eventually lost my mind on Saturday watching this game. There was a third and two. Huge moment in the game. I think it was late in the third quarter before the game just legitimately got out of hand. And there was a third and two. And Ole Miss decided to run a setup with their defense where their corners were giving an eight-yard cushion to the receivers. If it's third and two and you're giving me an eight-yard cushion, there is no possible way, if I'm LSU in this situation, I'm anything. I'm running anything other than a quick little curl route, basically. That's all you're doing. I'm just going to run up two yards at the stick and just turn around and wait on the ball. And sure, I only pick up two or three yards, but guess what? It's an easy completion. It's an easy first down because you're too stupid and you're lining up eight yards off the line. The scheme right now in Oxford on the defensive side of the ball is so bad. It is so bad. It's so troublesome. It's so problematic. And I don't think that's going to change. And the problem is, sure, LSU is good. They're big. They're physical. But it's not going to change against Alabama. Arkansas is just going to body you um, in the trenches, offensive and defensive line. Auburn, or not Auburn, um, Arkansas. Arkansas in a couple weeks, they're literally just going to run the ball right down your throat, whether it's K.J. Jefferson, whether it's handoffs, whether it's a little jet sweep here and there. That's all uh, Arkansas is going to do. I keep wanting to say Auburn. But, no, in a couple weeks, that's all Arkansas is going to do against this Ole Miss defense if something doesn't change. Something has to change. The scheme, schematically, you have to make an adjustment because it ain't working right now. You saw it last week against Auburn where you gave up 300 yards rushing. That can't happen. Auburn is terrible. And you gave up over 300 yards rushing, I believe it was. And now this week against LSU, you just get bullied. Now, part of this, it's not just the defense. Like I said earlier, it's the offense too. The offense on the, the rushing attack, The offensive line looks pretty good. Led by Nick Broker, everything looks okay. Pass protection, they're atrocious. Jackson Dart ended up getting killed in this game because there is no pass protection at all. And the thing is that when they play Alabama in a couple weeks, if you don't fix that pass protection, Will Anderson is going to have 18 sacks in this ballgame alone. If, if something doesn't change. That's how bad the Ole Miss team looked this week between the the offensive line on pass protection, between the defensive line, the scheme, uh, the scheme itself. Everything just looked so bad. So we knew they were overranked coming in. They were at number seven, I think, in the AP poll. I had them down around nine or ten. That clearly has changed. That clearly has dropped. And I think they are now kind of where they belong, right about 15 or 16. But, man, being an Ole Miss fan was just, it was infuriating to watch this week. Just because of how bad everything looked. And then, like I said, the fact that the scheme was the problem. It's not necessarily the fact that you were just mismatched talent-wise, because I don't really think you were. You just got outcoached. And I know Brian Kelly is one of the best coaches in football, but you just got outcoached and you got abused in the second half. And it's infuriating to watch. It was it was difficult to watch at times. I was losing my mind just at the the basic sides. The the basic thing. We're not even talking about all that 
you know, intricate of details here. We're talking about basic things that anyone can see that never got addressed, never got adjusted during the game at all. That's a problem that's problematic moving forward. That's the Ole Miss side of things there. Um, a few other things that I want to talk about. Miami. Man, oh man, did y'all see this? Miami played Duke this weekend. Miami ended up with eight turnovers in this football game. <laughs> that sounds like a typo. It really does sound like a typo. The notion that a team, a Power 5 team, has eight turnovers in a football game sounds insane. I will tell you guys, it's not a typo. It really was that bad. Miami turned the ball eight, uh, turned the ball over eight times, ended up getting trounced by Duke. Now Mario Cristobal's job, I know it's year one, and he's going to get next year for sure just because. But when you looked at the problem in Oregon, the problem when he was at Oregon wasn't recruiting. It was developing the talent. We are now seven games in, I believe it is, to his stint at Miami. And the issue hasn't necessarily been recruiting. The issue has been the fact that nothing has gotten better. The team is still as sloppy as they always have been over the past decade. And it's just, it's disgusting to watch. It's horrible football. It's painful to watch. It's if you're a Miami fan out there, I really do apologize because it is that bad if you're sitting down watching Miami Hurricane football. Last thing to talk about in terms of college football. Jimbo Fisher. I talked about Jimbo Fisher a few weeks back following the App State loss from Texas A&M um, early on in the year. And I mentioned the fact that to me, Jimbo Fisher is one of the biggest He's virtually the most infamous, the most um, well-known, call it bank robber of all time in America. This guy, throughout his career, has had two years where you looked really good when Jameis Winston was your quarterback. That's it. Any other year at Florida State was average at best. At A&M, the COVID year, 2020, they looked good. I thought they should have been in the playoff at like 9-1 and one or whatever it was in the shortened season. Every other year that Jimbo Fisher has been a coach has been mediocre to just downright bad. The best they can do now is four and four or is eight and four this year. And I don't even think they're getting that. This is a Jimbo Fisher led Texas AM team who you signed the number one recruiting class, slash you potentially helped buy the number one recruiting class with the NIL stuff. You got into the feud with Nick Saban about Saban making the comment that they bought all the recruits, they bought the class. You were more focused on that clearly than you were actually teaching how to play football because they absolutely suck. They're terrible. And when you look at it, you move forward. Like I said, we've known that Jimbo Fisher is an 8-4 and four coach. That's the best they're doing this year now. Best you got is 8-4, and four, and I don't even think they get 8-4. and four. I think this is a 7-5 and five team. This might even be a 6-6 six and six team. That's how bad Texas A&M has looked. The issue, because of the buyout, because of the absolute masterful finesse job that Jimbo Fisher managed to get done in College Station, I don't know that they can afford to get rid of him. They might find a way to fork over that money just because it has to be done, and I think it really does have to be done at this point. But I don't know that the money is there to actually make that move and get rid of him right now. But regardless of what the situation is, Jimbo Fisher, if y'all ever need to figure out a way to finesse someone out of money, go find his agent. Because this guy is incredible at what he's doing. This guy is absolutely magnificent of a marketer in order to get Jimbo Fisher this 
contract and then the extension that came along with it in the end because there is no possible way he should be making more than about three to four million dollars a year right now and instead he's making somewhere close to 10. It's insane. Jimbo Fisher, phenomenal job in terms of finessing Texas A&M out of millions. Absolutely incredible stuff there. Now with that out of the way, let's go ahead and quickly give the ARC top 10 Keep in mind, this is based solely on what we've seen on the field this year, not based on preseason polls, not based on any of that. This is solely based on the field and everything that we've seen from these teams. So as we wrap up the college football segment here, let's go ahead and dive into the ARC Top 10 real quick. At number 10, I have Wake Forest. This is one of the weird ones in this poll in the sense that Wake Forest has quietly been a monster this year. They don't do it all that flashy most of the time. They may not just destroy teams, but when you look at it, their only loss is a overtime loss to Clemson in a game that they should have won. That's the only loss that Wake has on the year. That's the only game that's really been all that close. So at number 10, give me Wake. At number 9, I have Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State comes in. Um, their only loss is to TCU. By the way, I have TCU at number 8 on my list. Those are the two best teams in the Big 12 Conference. They played a game last week. Ended up going into overtime. TCU sneaks away with the win. As far as it goes, you could virtually put those at the same spot, but solely because of the fact that TCU has the win and Oregon does not, or not Oregon, Oklahoma State does not, I'm going to give TCU the nod head-to-head. So number 10, Wake Forest. Number 9, Oklahoma State. Number 7, TCU. Number 6, I have... Not not number seven. Number eight, I have TCU. Number seven, I have Oregon. The Oregon Ducks, like I said, they have been absolutely demolishing people this year outside of a opening game loss to Georgia in a game, number one, that it was a, quote, neutral site game in Atlanta against Georgia. Oregon traveled 3,000 miles for this game. Georgia traveled about an hour, and you end up losing 49-3. to Since then, Oregon just looks like one of the best teams in the country. They absolutely exposed UCLA this weekend um, up there in Eugene. So at number seven, I have Oregon. At number six, I have Clemson. Clemson to me is problematic. I They're there because they're undefeated, but that's the only reason they're there, if we're going to be honest. I don't buy into this Clemson team at all. The defense is decent. The offense has a ton of work to do. DJU, like I mentioned earlier, he's either really good or really bad, and in terms of skill position players, outside of Will Shipley, I don't know what Clemson has. I don't trust these receivers at all. So Clemson is at number six for me solely because of the fact that they are undefeated and haven't actually taken a loss yet. That's it. Number five, I have Alabama. Alabama, um, apart from the Tennessee loss last week that came in a three-point loss that, quite frankly, Alabama should have won. The number of mistakes, the guy on the punt, the missed field goal, all of those things are things that you don't normally see from Alabama. To me, Alabama is still arguably the best team in the country. The problem is they haven't always played like it this year yet. So where we are, give me Alabama at number five. They just destroyed Mississippi State this weekend. Uh, Nothing surprising. Could have been a lot worse. I just don't think they were all that interested, which is somewhat problematic coming off a loss. But nonetheless, Alabama at number five. Number four, give me Michigan. Michigan just continues to roll. They didn't play this week, I don't believe. 
I don't think they did. I believe this was their bye week. So um, when you look at it right now, you had Michigan last week, like I said, taking down Penn State easily. Now they have the rivalry game against Michigan State coming up this week. By the way, Michigan State is terrible. Look for the Wolverines to roll there. At number three, I have Georgia. Georgia, the reason I have them at number three is because of the fact that their schedule to this point has been somewhat weak, and they have two games against bad competition that they just didn't look interested in in Kent State and Missouri. Other than that, Georgia might be the best team in the country. I think it's them or Alabama. And Georgia might actually be the best team in the country. The problem is with those two weeks against a weak schedule, I'm going to drop Georgia just a touch. Got the Bulldogs, number three. Number two, give me Ohio State. Ohio State destroying people. Nothing has been close to this point. The problem is the schedule has been atrocious as well. That's the only reason Ohio State is number is number two on my list here on the ARC Top 10. C.J. Stroud looks really good. The, uh, the running backs back in the backfield, they're doing their job when they need to. The receivers, it's Ohio State. The receivers are always good, so there's no concern there. Ohio State rolling right along. This week, they finally get a small test as they go to Happy Valley. Um, it's an early morning game, though. It's the big noon kickoff game on Fox. So they avoid a wideout. They avoid a primetime game, as it were. That might be the best thing for Ohio State here. And then at number one, I still have Tennessee. Tennessee, they have the best win of the year over Alabama. I know it was at home. I know it was a game they shouldn't have won, but they did. That's all that matters. They got the win there. They've taken down a few other teams that are either ranked or borderline ranked. And they just continue to roll right along. This week, they hung 65 on UT Martin. I think the defense is concerning. The defense is absolutely still concerning. And I think it may end up proving to be an issue moving forward. But for now, the offense has handled it. They've managed to overcome any challenge they have. The next two weeks, that's where we find out what Tennessee is. They get Kentucky this week at home in Knoxville. And then in two weeks, they go on the road to Athens, a one versus three, one versus two game in the polls. That's going to be a massive football game in two weeks. Can't wait for that one. So be on the lookout there. But for right now, give me Tennessee at number one. Now, switching gears, let's go NFL for a minute and talk some NFL football that we saw this weekend. So with the NFL this weekend, we had not all that many surprises. There were a few surprises for sure. But not all that many. I think the deeper problem with a few of these NFL games this weekend was just figuring out where the issues lie with a few of these teams. Um, The Titans knocked off the Colts. There's no real surprise there. After a rough start to the year, the Tennessee Titans have finally, they look like they're waking up a little bit. They're playing better football. Derrick Henry quietly having a decent season. Ryan Tannehill making things work, at least for now. The defense playing pretty well. So if you're a Titans fan, you have to be proud as they have finally woken up. Uh, Don't look now, but the Cincinnati Bengals playing really good football. They've now won four of their last five. Joe Burrow lighting up the Atlanta Falcons yesterday, throwing for almost 500 yards Absolutely phenomenal performance from Joe Burrow there. I don't know that the Bengals are quite there yet, but when you look at it, they were the AFC champion from last year. Rough start to the year. However, it looks like the offensive line is getting a little better. They're beginning to gel a little bit more. Joe Burrow is starting to look a little more comfortable, and who knows what we have moving forward if you're the Cincinnati Bengals. Um The Cowboys get the 24-6 win over Detroit with Dak Prescott back in the lineup. I this game proved to me what I've been saying all along as 
Dallas eventually pulled away late, but I don't know that there's that much of a difference between Dak and Cooper Rush. I know if you talk to Cowboy fans, they're adamant. They're like, oh my God, Dak is just so much better. He's this, he's that, and everything else. My question is, is he really, though? Is he really, though? Detroit's defense is atrocious. Keep that in mind when we discuss this real quick. Detroit's defense, god-awful. God-awful. They gave up 48 to Seattle earlier this year. In an NFL game, that's absurd. This is not a good Detroit Lions defense. Dallas, Dak Prescott yesterday, 19 of 25. Good numbers, good completion percentage. 207 yards. Okay, not bad. That's an average of 8.3, I believe is what it is that I'm looking at here, which that's always been the issue with Dak Prescott. He doesn't throw the ball downfield. All you get with Dak are little dump down passes, 8, 10, 12 yards upfield, that's it. He can't throw the deep ball. I think that's one issue with Dak. He threw one touchdown, no interceptions. That's literally no different than anything you get from Cooper Rush. And Cooper Rush saves you $30 million. That was my complaint all along. That's been my complaint from the very jump, the very beginning surrounding Dak Prescott in this move. I personally would keep Cooper Rush. Yesterday to me proved that. But, hey, the Dallas Cowboys, they got the win. I know that's all that matters. But moving forward, I think there are questions there, um, especially if things continue for Dak to look a little shaky at times. I know next week the, um, the Cowboys get the Bears. That shouldn't be a problem. But week nine is where the real question becomes if you're a Cowboys fan as – the maybe it's not week nine. Hold on, is it not week nine? I got ahead of myself. It, it is, um, bouncing forward. It's week 10, not week nine. That the Cowboys go on the road to Lambeau and take on the Packers. So keep that one in mind as we move forward. But like I said, for now, a win's a win. The Cowboys got the win there. That, in the end, is all that matters. The Giants getting the win over Jacksonville came a little closer than they probably wanted to. But when you're a Giants fan at this point, you can't be, you can't be picky with the way you get wins. They're at six. They continue to roll. Brian Dable, they're hanging right there in the NFC East, and that's all you can ask for. That's more than I think most people would have expected you to get from New York so far this year. So props to the Giants there. Um, A few others that we saw, the Seattle Seahawks going on the road, getting a 14-point win over the Chargers. I don't know whether I buy into the Seahawks. I think they're fraudulent. But at some point, you have to look at it and say, that offense is scoring on everyone, and the defense is doing just enough. So I don't think they're that good. But at the same time, if you keep winning and you keep scoring 35-plus, good things can potentially happen. So at this point, if you're a Seattle Seahawks fan, you have to be happy with what you're getting. You have to be happy with what it is that you're seeing from Pete Carroll up there in Seattle. Um And then the two that I really want to talk about, the Green Bay Packers losing to the Washington Commanders and what's his name, Taylor Heineke. That is beyond inexcusable. The Packers have looked a little rough over the past couple weeks. They're now three and four on the year. This... This is bad, and it's because of the fact that, number one, Aaron Rodgers hasn't looked great. He looked okay. Completion percentage was pretty good, but he only threw for 194 and two touchdowns. He averaged five and a half yards of completion. 
you have to have somebody on that offense that can get downfield and make plays. And I question whether the Green Bay Packers have that right now. Alan Lazard, he's not that guy. He'll he'll get you seven or eight, but I think that's where he is. And there's no one else on this team. I think when you look at it, that you say, "Wow, this is a this is a deep threat to speak of." So that's problematic if you're a Green Bay fan. But more than that, more than the fact that the offense just doesn't look great right now, as I think I think they can fix that side of things. The fact that the Green Bay defense gave up 23 to Washington, that's concerning. That That's bad. Because this Washington offense is not good. They just aren't. You started Heineke yesterday, and all he did was go 20 of 33, 201, two touchdowns and a pick, and he took down the Green Bay Packers. This Green Bay defense has a lot of questions. And they have to get better down the stretch. I mean, it's it's far from over. We're seven games into a 17-game season. So a lot of things can happen. When you look at Aaron Rodgers, I have faith in Aaron Rodgers to get things going and to get things back on track. But where we are right now, that is just majorly concerning, if we're going to be totally honest. The other one, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers not only losing to Carolina, losing to Carolina is bad enough, especially losing to a Carolina team who no longer has a coach, a Carolina team who just traded away their best player in Christian McCaffrey. Not only did Tampa Bay lose, Tampa Bay got destroyed. 21-3 against this Carolina team? I don't know what you do with that. I have no idea what you do with that. Um, and the problem is, it's easy to look at it and say, wow, 21 to 3 sure does look like Tom Brady is, you know, he's getting a little too old for this. Maybe he needs to hang it up. This wasn't on Tom Brady, guys. 32 of 49 for 290? Those are pretty good numbers. I know the average isn't where you want it to be. You would you would like the six-yard average right there to probably be closer to 10 or so. But nonetheless, 32 of 49, that's, that's not bad. Maybe you could have a touchdown. By the way, if Mike Evans could catch wide open balls, they would have had a touchdown. That deflated the entire game, and I think that's honestly – it's very rare that you look at one play and say, wow, one play dictated the entire game. I think the Mike Evans drop yesterday may have actually potentially had an impact on that entire game. So that's one to keep in mind. But the bigger issue right now with Tampa Bay is the fact that they ran for 46 yards against Carolina. That's so bad. That's so, so, so bad, guys, that there are real problems in Tampa Bay right now. The issue is that even at three and four, Tampa Bay is still right there in the hunt. I believe they are still tied for first in their division right now. That's how bad the NFC South is. But like I said, there are real problems. They have to be able to run the ball. The offensive line is going to have to play better. And then, yes, Mike Evans... All he has to do is catch that one ball where I believe they said the closest defender on that play was potentially 10.9 yards away. He literally had 11 yards of separation, guys, and just dropped the ball. That's a killer. Those are the kind of things that deflate teams, and that's exactly what we saw there from Mike Evans. So that's a killer, but at least, like I said, if you're Tampa Bay – You've slept walked through the year so far, and you're still tied for first. You're still right there. The NFL playoffs are one of those things where, by and large, as long as you can get in, then anything can happen. All bets are off. And I think that's what we're going to end up seeing from Tampa Bay is that they look shaky. They don't look great. 
But in the end, you know the talent's there. As we continue to move forward, I do still put faith in Tom Brady to just simply say, I won't lose big games down the stretch. I'm not going to miss the playoffs. Look for Tampa Bay to make the playoffs. And then with Tom Brady, you get TB12 in the postseason. You never know what happens. So, yes, there are real concerns both in Green Bay and Tampa Bay right now. But in the end, I think you just have to be be patient and continue to stay optimistic. Yes, like I said, we we can all address that there are real issues, but stay with it, stay patient. I think things will straighten out over the course of the year. That's the takeaway there. Lastly, um, Chiefs 49ers yesterday afternoon. The 49ers first game with Christian McCaffrey in the lineup. The offense looked pretty good at times. The offense looked, I think, kind of how we would expect when you're talking Jimmy Garoppolo, Debo Samuel, George Kittle, Christian McCaffrey, and Brandon Ayuk. The The offense looked about how you would expect. There were shaky moments, but for the most part, they looked pretty good. Everything flowed pretty well. Everything flowed pretty smooth. The concern here is the defense. And my question is, do we think this is a San Francisco 49er defensive problem? Or is this the fact that you were playing a Patrick Mahomes-led Chiefs offense that got rolling through midway through the second quarter or so? And at that point, Patrick Mahomes just turned it on. They turned it loose and just rolled. 25 of 34 for 423 and three touchdowns for Mahomes yesterday. He did have one pick, but when you do everything else with those numbers, that one pick doesn't matter all that much. So it's one of those where, like I said, I think if you're San Francisco, you like what you saw from the offense with Christian McCaffrey in it, especially when he's only been there for two or three days. There are concerns about the defense. I think you have to address certain problems on that defense. But part of that is also the fact that you are playing one of the best offenses in the NFL in Kansas City. So there's a question mark there, but I don't think it's time to be too concerned if you're San Francisco. On the flip side, if you're Kansas City here, you got to be extremely excited. I know they slipped up against Buffalo. You lost a tight one last week. But to then go on the road this week out to San Francisco and just put it on the 49ers. 44 points probably could have been more if we're going to be totally honest. If you're a Kansas City fan, you have to like what you see because what it does is prove to us and make very clear that when this Chiefs team is clicking on all cylinders, when they are hitting on everything – they are going to be extremely difficult to beat, and when they are doing that, they might legitimately be the best team in the NFL. That's the thing to keep in mind surrounding the game yesterday afternoon there. Uh, that's going to do it for the breakdown of the NFL weekend. Tonight we have an unwatchable game between the Bears and the Patriots. I don't know what we're doing with that game, but it's going to be ugly. It's going to be atrocious, but nonetheless... The Bears, they can't score. The Patriots, they're probably going to score a little bit. I don't know how much it's going to be, but they're probably going to score a little bit. Best bet on the game tonight, the under of 40. I wouldn't care about the spread. I wouldn't care about the money line. By the way, if you're going to do it, take the Patriots on the money line. Take the under 40. Because I don't see the Bears scoring more than about 10 or 13 in this one. And in the end... I don't know that New England's going to be all that interested. Look for a 28-10 score, 28-7, something like that. That's what I think this game ends up being. It's not all that close, but it's also not high scoring. New England gets the easy win. That's the uh, Monday night game tonight. Now, to round out the show as we wrap things up here, the World Series is now set. We saw over the weekend – You saw the Philadelphia Phillies knock out the San Diego Padres in five games. 
we saw the Houston Astros sweep the New York Yankees. And we now get an Astros-Phillies World Series. One of these teams was expected. Houston was pretty much expected from a lot of people. They've been a buzzsaw for most of the year. I know the Yankees through the first 60 or so looked phenomenal, but over the last two-thirds of the year, the Houston Astros have been the best team in the AL. They proved that once again in the ALCS. They're in the World Series. I don't know how many people expected the Philadelphia Phillies to get there, but nonetheless, they're there and they mean business. Uh, You look at it, Bryce Harper with the big-time clutch two-run home run in the bottom of the eighth of game five. The good news with the NLCS, at least, is the fact that the games were close. I know Philly won basically all of them as it only went to five games, but at least the games were close. The games were fun. They were competitive. You look at it, game four, I thought um, the check swing disaster on whatever his name is, Profar maybe is his name, in the top of the ninth there, the Padres down, I believe they were down two runs with no outs in the top of the ninth, runner on first, a full count, check swing, by the way, I'm sorry, I don't think he went, you should have had first and second with no outs, tying run at first, and instead the third base umpire upon appeal rings him up, strike three, That ended that game, basically. At that point, you knew there was no coming back there. And then in game five, again, the Padres with a lead. And what happened is a questionable managerial decision from Bob Melvin then leads to a home run for Bryce Harper, like I said, in the bottom of the eighth The Phillies end up taking the lead. The Phillies hang on and get the win. They advance. The games were fun. The Phillies just looked like the slightly better team. On the other side, the games weren't even fun. The Astros just ran through the Yankees. Keep this in mind. The New York Yankees, who are supposed to have a really good offense, the bats, you look at it, John Carlos, Stan, Aaron Judge especially. You also have Matt Carpenter there. You have a few of these guys who are just monsters in the box. Or as Yankees manager Aaron Boone would say, they're effing savages in the box. That's fine too. But either way, a four-game series against the Houston Astros in the ALCS, the New York Yankees struck out 50 times. That is 12.5 That is 12 and a half strikeouts a game on average for this four-game series. That is insane. That means you're not even making Houston have to play. You see what I'm saying? It's not like Houston, the defense was just outstanding. It's not like they put up endless numbers of runs. They didn't. I bet they, I think for the series, they may have averaged five five a game, which is good, but it's not anything just outlandish. The problem is not only could the Yankees not score runs, they couldn't put the ball in play. Twelve and a half strikeouts a game on average is just stupid. And that's what we got from the New York Yankees in this series. You have to raise questions, and I think it's important to ask the questions and say, is this the best that we get from the Yankees? Because if it is, it's not good enough. They're good, but it's not good enough. And things are going to have to change. So there are questions there surrounding uh, Brian Cashman. There are questions there surrounding Aaron Boone. I don't think either one of them need to be fired, for sure. I mean, over the past four years, I believe it is, the Yankees have won 103, 99, 98, and 92 games. I think is the run over the past four years in the regular season. Those are good numbers. Those are good numbers. When I'm averaging 97 wins a year over a four-year stretch, I'm doing something right. The problem is you just can't get over the Houston hurdle 
which has been the over that same time frame in the past four, five, six years, they have been the the and all well, the end all, the be all of Major League Baseball. So keep that in mind moving forward is that I think questions have to be asked. They need to be raised. And I think a few roster decisions need to be made for New York. But other than that, when you look at it, I think you you have to be happy with what you have. Now, the notion that New York fans were booing Aaron Judge, by the way, in this ALCS, that's terrible. That's how you run a star out of, t- out of town. It's that simple. You are not there without Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge almost single-handedly carried this team for a lot of the year, and I know he struggled in the ALCS, but everyone did. Your team sucked in the ALCS. The notion that you were booing the guy who got you there – not a great look, but Yankee fans, New York fans, it's kind of what you grow to expect. So that's going to do it for the Major League Baseball breakdown of the um, ALCS and the NLCS. Um, I will be forward on, I guess it's Wednesday. The plan here is to do this show Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then do the Lonely Roundtable, my other podcast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So be sure to look out for those two, Tuesday and Thursday. I will be back here on Wednesday previewing the World Series, looking at what we have there as long as, as well as discussing a few other stories as well. So keep that in mind moving forward. I, like I said, will see you guys on Wednesday. In the meantime, as always, go out, leave a rating, leave a review. Um, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, wherever it is that you were listening to this from, leave ratings, leave reviews. That's how we grow. That's how we get bigger. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you guys for listening. I'm Noah Dunlap. I'm your host here at the Noah's Ark of Sports Podcast. I will see you guys Wednesday. As always, in the meantime, y'all stay safe out there. Love you guys.